Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Wellness with Liz Earle. I do hope you have been enjoying our three-part gut health special. Now, if you haven't listened to our introduction to the magic of microbes with Professor Tim Spector and our foray into fermented foods with Ursel Barnes, be sure to catch up after listening to this week's episode. Now, while we know gut health plays a crucial role in heart health, skin health, mental health and more, it's of course most commonly associated with digestive issues and this is our topic for today's episode. I'm delighted to be joined by UK registered dietitian and health writer Laura Tilt to take a deep dive into digestion and her specialist area, irritable bowel syndrome, better known by just its three initials, IBS. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am so (laughs) thrilled that you're here because obviously I talk a lot about gut health Mm. and I tend to kind of go straight into mental health and all the kind of fancy high-fluting stuff. And of course, the the root issue for so many people, their introduction, if you like, into gut health Mm. is... when something goes wrong. When something, yeah, (laughs) goes wrong and your digestion, the very bit that we associate with our, our gut isn't working. So when did you first discover the importance of gut health generally? So my journey sort of into gut health and IBS, so when I qualified as a dietitian and I uh, was working at UCLH and Euston Road, the big teaching hospital there. The big one in London. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And pretty similar to when you qualify as a doctor, you sort of do um, a bit of work in lots of different areas and, and work out what your specialty will be or what you're really interested in. Um, and I became really interested in the gut because if something goes wrong with the digestion and absorption of your food, then nothing else tends to work. So how long ago was that? So this was about five or six years ago. So not that long. So gut health was really kind of emerging as this new science. Definitely not as, it was peaked, the interest has really really Mm. ridden a wave. But, um, yeah, I became really interested in, so any condition which sort of affected sort of mouth to bottom, the gut and then I ended up uh, working with our patients who had IBS so I had a clinic on a Tuesday and I used to see sort of patients back to back and suddenly became very aware of how many people had IBS first of all and how little information they we had about the condition there was also lots of sort of misinformation so people would come into clinic and tell me that they'd been to see their doctor and they'd been told um, they just needed to put up with it or that they'd been told to cut out sort of gluten and dairy, but with absolutely no explanation. Right. And so they sort of come in super frustrated. And, you know, IBS is, you know, on every 
sort of people with IBS is lots of different symptoms and, mm. and different levels of severity. But, you know, at the worst, people are really affect your quality of life. Yeah. So sort of coming and feeling very frustrated. And so not what really is it? I mean, what are your symptoms of IBS? What's the clinical definition? Yeah, so IBS, or as you said, irritable bowel syndrome. So it's a condition which affects how the gut moves and functions. So there's no disease in the gut. So if we were to put a camera down the, uh, into the gut, uh, we would see that everything looks normal and healthy, but the way that it's functioning um, is altered. So that might mean you're going to the loo more often or less often. So symptoms of diarrhea or constipation. Is it something that we all might have a bit of now and then, or is it um, its own separate thing? Yeah, no, it's in order for IBS to be diagnosed, your symptoms must have been present for at least three months or longer in the last sort of six, over the last six months. Uh, and it also is associated with a change in, in your poo. So either... Uh, in the frequency, so how often you're going or what your poo looks like as well. Mm. Um, but and another sort of key symptom is tummy pain. So normally people have tummy pain associated with a change in their poo habit and other associated symptoms might be things like bloating, sort of having excessive right. wind, heartburn, sort of general discomfort. How like. often should we be going? <laughs> this is the critical question. Yeah, no, what's normal? Um, I think the question is really what, like, what's normal for you? So um, lots of people think that we should go every single day. And that is normal for lots of people. But for other people, they have a sort of naturally slower transit time. Really? Yep. So maybe going every other day might be normal for them. But what I would say is you need to also um, be aware of what your poo looks like. So if you're having, you know, ideally when we're, when we're passing stools, we want to be able to, that to be quick and fairly painless. Yeah, we shouldn't be straining when we're going to the toilet. So there is a there is a stool chart, yes, isn't there? Yes. What, what's it called? Yeah. You can the look Bristol, it up online. Yeah, Bristol stool charts. <laughs> if you haven't seen the Bristol stool chart, <laughs> the Bristol stool Bristol, chart, yeah. and that is pictures of poo. Basically. Yeah, so basically, it's developed okay. um, actually in the sort of late nineties, and we're still using it now because it's still a valid tool. So sort of a cart it's sort of cartoon sort of drawings and um, so not real photos but drawings of seven <laughs> different types of poos so ranging from what yeah so types one and two are sort of hard and pellety so more like what we would say like rabbit poo and that's normally a symptom sort of constipation or the types of stools that you'll have when you're constipated um types three to five sort of like smooth like sausage type poops um mm -hmm. and that's generally what you'll be aiming for your poos aren't going to be the same every day right but generally somewhere between sort of three and five and then type six to seven are sort of liquid stools, uh, like diarrhea that we've all experienced from time to time, potentially mm -hmm. after we've sort of had a tummy bug. Um, yeah. And that's normally a symptom of, yes, there's an infection there. Or sometimes um, that can be a symptom of a condition like IBS um, or, in fact, um, other conditions as well. So things like inflammatory bowel disease. Mm, gosh. Yeah. So how do we diagnose IBS you said that you've yeah. got to have symptoms for about three months is something like diarrhea these liquid watery stools does that always mean that there's an infection present what else um, would cause it well there's lots of there's lots of potential um, causes, I guess. And this is why if you are having gut symptoms that go on for longer than like a week or two, it's important to get them checked out with your GP. Because um, it could be IBS, but it also could be a symptom of an underlying condition like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease. And mm. they will share the same symptoms. So it's very difficult just to say, you know, from one symptom what it might be. Uh, sometimes people say, you know, what's the difference between IBS and having a dodgy tummy that, yeah. that you might have had after potentially having uh, a tummy bug? So, you know, a tummy bug will clear itself up within a week or so normally. Yeah. Or sometimes if you've had sort of loose stools after going on holiday, um, they should clear themselves up. They, they're not, they shouldn't be long lasting or chronic. Um, so if you are having symptoms um, or a change in your poo that's gone on for sort of longer than a week or two, mm. really important to visit your GP. Um, Do GPs know much about IBS? It's getting better. So I think in the past it was a 
I wouldn't say like it was a mysterious condition, but there's nothing we can check for in your blood to know whether you've got IBS. There's no markers of it, because as I said, the gut looks healthy, so it's more to do with the way it's functioning. Um, and that in the past has led to um, IBS being a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion. So we've ruled out everything else and you've got IBS, off you go, you know, sort of be happy with that. But actually our sort of care and attention um, and our knowledge about IBS is becoming a lot better now. Um, I would say if you're finding that um, your GPs maybe not very empathetic, it's uh, you can chat to the receptionist at your doctor's surgery and just ask for who specialises in, in gut, uh, gut sort of symptoms and IBS. Yeah. and. Mm -hmm you might find that you get a slightly more empathetic ear. Yeah. Um, but I think, yes, generally our kind of knowledge and, and care is getting better. And I know lots of people feel embarrassed about talking about poop and sort of gut sure. symptoms as well. Um, I can assure you that your doctor has heard it all before. <laughs> yes. But if you do feel uh, embarrassed, actually it's really what I normally recommend is um, to keep a bit of a stall and symptom diary. So just for a week or two before you go, um, just note down um, how often you're opening your bowels, what your stools look like, using the stool chart because they'll be familiar with that um, and any symptoms that you're having. And so when you go to your GP, you can sort of hand that over and it's just going to summarise quite nicely yeah. what you're experiencing. That's an easy thing to do, yeah. put it on a piece of paper, isn't yeah. it? Not literally, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so what is causing it? Do we know? And is it on the increase? Is it, is it mm. we're living in a more stressful-related society? So in terms of causes, we, we just don't know. There's lots of potential triggers, and I think not everybody's IBS is the same. So sometimes people develop something called post-infective IBS. So that's maybe after you've uh, been traveling or or had a sort of tummy bug, um, food poisoning, and it's just kind of never really properly cleared is up. Is that because we've changed our microbiome? Because yeah. our gut bugs yeah, have changed. Yeah, quite possibly. It seems like there is a change. There's no, at the moment, we don't have, um, we can't look at somebody's microbiome and say, oh yes, this is the signature microbiome for IBS. But we do know that people with IBS have changes in their microbiota. So they seem to have uh, lower levels of some of the more helpful types of bacteria. So like what? Bifidobacteria family, for example. Mm. So you'll quite often see those, the sort of beneficial bacteria that are added to sort of yogurts and that we find in, in fermented foods. So those would be helpful potentially if you have IBS? Yeah, potentially. Um, I think it's too early to say, as I said, what they kind of, we don't have have a, a signature microbiome mm. yet sort of to be able to identify IBS but th there is research going on into that um so sometimes it might have sort of an effective route other times um it's a really strong component to do with our mental well-being so we've all experienced mm. nervy tummy peas yes. <laughs> so when you're you've got an interview or you're quite anxious you probably find that you're running for the loo I think yeah. most people have experienced that or what I call exam tummy mm. so, so how does that work then how is your brain influencing so essentially when you're when you feel stressed your gut feels it too so when we when we experience stress and we get the release of certain um, hormones stress hormones you can actually travel to the gut and are picked up by the gut and actually increase what we call gut motility so move movement in the gut so that's why uh, they're causing you to sort of run for loo mm -hmm. so that's the kind of sort of more immediate sort of um effect but also we know that over the long term sort of stress hormones seem to affect the growth of certain types of beneficial bacteria as well so if you kind of think of somebody who's really, really chronically stressed um, over time, that may actually um, may actually be one of the contributing factors um, to IBS. Um, and there's a foundation called the Rome Foundation, who are a group of experts who Rome. do Rome, R-O-M-E. As in the city? Yes, yeah. Okay, Rome. Um, so the Rome Foundation is a group of uh, sort of international experts who um, sort of leading research into um, IBS and other sort of gut disorders. And they're sort of reframing IBS as um, a condition of sort of 
the gut brain interaction where something's kind of you maybe gone a bit amiss so mm. we know that our um i think you sort of spoke about this with tim a little bit but our gut and our brain are sort of constantly interacting with yeah. each other so we have a big long nerve running down from our brain into our gut called the vagus nerve and what happens in vagus definitely doesn't stay in vagus in terms of the gut <laughs> and um but also so there's constant communication going back and forth between your gut and your brain but also your bacteria uh, the bacteria that live in your gut, they also produce various kind of hormones and neurotransmitters that are sort of chatting with your brain as well. So, yes, there's a strong, for some people with IBS, there's a really strong element um, of um, effect of sort of stress and anxiety. Mm. And so sometimes we really want it to be a certain food or something that's affecting our gut when actually yeah. we maybe need to have a look at things like how stressful our life is. And, yeah. and quite often when I'm chatting to people with IBS, they'll, and we sort of go back to when it started, Quite often they'll say, you know, it got really bad when I moved house or when I was having a really, really stressful period at work. Um, and so it's always worth thinking sort of, you know, more holistically about yeah. your, your lifestyle in general. Yeah. And then coming back to food, we hear quite a lot now increasingly about the importance of fibre mm. and fibre rich diets for, for digestion. And yeah. in the old days, it used to be, oh, have a spoonful of bran and you'll be fine roughage, yeah. <laughs> and, and roughage. What What's the link between fibre and, and IBS and, and digestive health in general? Yeah, I think it's really important that we separate the conversation out between fibre for people who don't have IBS and fibre for sort of um, people who do. So generally speaking, for like general population who want to look after their gut health and you don't have any existing conditions, then uh, yes, a high fibre diet is recommended. When you say high fibre, what sort of fibre are you talking yeah, about? So fi high fibre, so in the UK it's recommended that we have about 30 grams of fibre a day, which doesn't really mean much to what most of us. What does that look like? Is yeah, that like exactly. a kind of a fistful? Or? No, much more than that. So the British Nutrition Foundation, um, so this recommendation came out about, uh, I think it was 2015. So the sort of uh, there's a, a, a group of experts who advise the government and they sort of looked at all the evidence to do with carbohydrates and health and decided that there was enough strong evidence to suggest that we should be eating more fibre and mm -hmm. we should be aiming for 30 grams a day. Um, and then the British Nutrition Foundation did a, a piece of work where they looked at whether that was achievable or not, because right. sometimes these recommendations aren't always. Uh, and what they found was that it is possible, but it takes a very healthy diet. So it looks something like between five and eight portions of fruits and vegetables today, mm -hmm. uh, a day, having um, whole grains with two out of your three meals um, and snacking on things like dried fruit and nuts. Um, and that doesn't right, look like the diet that lots of us That's have. not every yeah. day an average. And I think a yeah. lot of people are cutting down on carbs. So they exactly. might not have, be having the whole grains. They might still be having the yeah. the veg fibre, which I think is Yeah, and that's beneficial. a really good point. So quite often I see people in clinic and they'll say, and I'll sort of have a look over their food diary and I might say to somebody, you know, I don't think you're having enough fibre. Mm. Um, and they'll say, oh, but I eat, I eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Um, and sort of, you know, they have differing levels of fibre. So something like tin tomatoes is really low on fibre, whereas something like peas is really, are really high in fibre mm. and dried fruits. So um, it's very difficult to know how much fibre is in a food just by eyeballing it and, it, yeah. you know... Um, but generally so, speaking... So are we looking at fibre that's like, I mean, you talk about peas and mm. sort of beans and things, things that are harder to break down? Yeah, so there's lots of different types of fibre and fibre's part. So fibre's um, a type of carbohydrate. 
it comes under the same group, but unlike other carbohydrates in our diet, we don't um, possess the enzyme to break it down and absorb it. So it passes through our system relatively undigested. So that has a couple of does a couple of things for us. One, it sort of speeds up transit time and moves waste through our gut, so it keeps us regular, which is probably what you granny would have said, mm-hmm. uh, the benefits of fibreware. Uh, but the other benefit is that um, because fibre isn't digested and absorbed in our small intestine, it lands in our large intestine. Now, that's where all of our microbes live. That's our microbe hotel. And they do <laughs> possess the enzymes to break down fibre. So fibre actually feeds your gut microbes um, and keeps them energised, if you like. Um, Great, so it's food for our friends yeah, down exactly. there. We need to be feeding yeah. them with this yeah. good stuff. It's fertiliser. Um, so, yeah, and high fibre diets have also been associated with a reduced risk of bowel cancer. So generally speaking, generally population eating a high fiber diet is a good idea Mm -hmm. if you're somebody with ibs uh, depending on what type of ibs you have because you might be somebody who struggles more with constipation or you might be somebody who struggles more with diarrhea um what we say is sort of fiber to tolerance so there's no there's no good evidence to suggest that there's what's the right amount of fiber for somebody with ibs um and i would probably argue for the reasons that we've just discussed that you know having as much as you can tolerate is good but mm. obviously if you're somebody who struggles with di- uh, with diarrhea actually eating loads of fiber can be quite irritative so would you start slowly then is that yeah, the way exactly. to in- introduce fiber back into your diet if you're kind of listening to this and thinking oh i'm not really sure mm. i'm eating enough yeah so and this would be for anybody regardless of whether they've got ibs or not so i'm mm. um, eating lots just going from eating not very much fiber to suddenly loading right. yourself up with lots of fiber you will find yourself on the loo and it's you know when you might get bloating then because you're body's going exactly. hold on a minute what is so all when your about? microbes consume fiber they do produce gas it's a byproduct of them doing their normal job and um, but obviously going from not eating much at all to having lots is is going to result in you feeling a bit gassy and bloated so should we worry then about feeling gassy and bloated you're saying it's a sign that our microbes are working yeah so i think a certain amount so we all produce gas every day, so... That's uh, normal, yeah? <laughs> yes, get out of the way now. Yeah. We all pass wind about 14 to 20 times a day. Really, 14 yes. to 20, yeah. okay. Um, so, that, so it's, first of all, it's a, it's a normal phenomenon, and the gas uh, in our guts comes from various chemical reactions that take place when we consume food, but all, mostly from our microbes doing their thing. So they're consuming fibre um, and producing gas. Um, most of us shouldn't experience too many problems with feeling gassy because we're also quite good at getting rid of it it moves through our Mm. system and we're able to expel it um so should we be farting quite often i mean is is that the norm i mean let's just get to the bottom line here (laughs) don't beat about the bush (laughs) so yeah normal to normal to fart sort of 14 to 20 times a day but it should we be worried if we don't uh, I do Does that mean that, that our microbes aren't working? So it's it, an indicator of what's going mm, on inside. So it's quite an interesting study that I was looking at the other day where they fed people really low fibre diets and then fed them much higher fibre diets. And yes, on the very low fibre diets, there was much less gas produced. Um, but generally speaking, I think, you know, you when we're passing gas, it's pro- it shouldn't be like painful. It shouldn't cause us, you know, lots of discomfort. Um, and generally speaking, like, Although we all sort of laugh about, you know, passing gas and it not smelling mm. great. For most of us, like we pass gas and it, there's not really much odour to it, you know, a lot of the time. Right. So certain, is, the, is the smell decatur then that it's So not certain good. foods can produce, are more odorous than right. others. Um, and certain types of gut bacteria also can produce more odorous um 
gases than others. Mm. Uh, so some people have more kind of methane producing bacteria in their guts and that can sometimes result in gas. That's a, that's a, a bit more odorous. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I, I just think it's a thing. I'm not sure whether it's potentially right. sort of good or bad, um, but um, it can, I guess, cause more problems um, for for some people if you're having if you're experiencing sort of discomfort mm. and we sort of say what's normal I would also I would always say that having the occasional episode of sort of feeling a bit bloated the occasional episode of heartburn you know occasionally feeling a bit bloated is normal mm. what's not normal is having excessive bloating every day yeah. feeling bloated after every meal and super uncomfortable and having you know some people sort of say like you know literally I'm having gas that will clear a room and that type of thing <laughs> is just and that and you know we do giggle but it's also for some uh. people that's a real that does really affect their quality of life so sure. it's when it's sort of chronic and ongoing that's normally a sign that your gut's sort of being like hey there's something you know not right so here. what can we do about it how can we mm. we stop the room clearing odors? <laughs> so i would say if you are having sort of uh i you know like chronic like uh tummy pain if you are having kind of excessive bloating mm. again going back to a gp first of all because excessive bloating can be a sign that there's something else going on so it could be a sign of celiac disease. Uh, it could be a sign that you are having trouble um, absorbing uh, uh, certain sugars in the diet. So, for example, lactose is the naturally occurring sugar in milk. Yeah. And some people have a problem breaking that down. Yeah, and my eldest son, actually, he, mm. he can't tolerate lactose. And he gets very bloated if he has yes. lactose in his diet. Exactly. So certain uh, sugars, if you can't sort of digest and absorb them, They'll travel through to your large intestine. The bacteria will consume them, produce gas, and that's what can cause that's the what bloating. Gives you the bloating. Yeah. Interesting. So, as I said, it's very difficult to say just from one symptom what the cause is, but always mm -hmm. important because some those things can be ruled out relatively quickly. And you know, there right. are, for example, if you're diagnosed with celiacs, you know, there's a, a there's a treatment pathway for that. If you do have inflammatory bowel disease, really important that mm. that you're treated properly for that. So, rather than sort of playing the guessing game, it's important to yeah. make sure there's nothing underlying first. And things like celiac disease you can medically screen for so you can yeah. can you do a test is it a blood test that yeah. proves if you're celiac exactly so it's just a blood test so if you do go to your uh, gp with sort of symptoms that have been going on for you know month or you know several weeks um they will uh, take a blood test which will check for um celiac disease and um inflammatory markers which might be um a sign of there being um inflammatory bowel disease is that something that we're born with or it develops later celiac disease so um it's what we call an autoimmune disease so yeah it develops develops uh, does develop later well it can sort of develop at any age essentially but it's sort of um when our immune system goes into overdrive and sort of essentially when somebody with celiac disease uh, consumes gluten which is a protein that's found in um, various cereal grains uh, their body mistakes that protein as a as a sort of foreign invader in their body um, and goes on to attack the lining of their small intestine Gosh, why that, why gluten? Uh, Do we, we don't know, know why? No, no. It's a, it's, just suddenly our body turns on yeah, it and says exactly, gluten is, that, is the bad guy yeah, and I'm not going to tolerate yeah, it. Yeah, and it's sort of almost like an overactive immune response. Um, so for those people, if you are diagnosed with CLTs, you have to do strict gluten exclusion. Um, Can we do anything else to treat it or is it just cutting out gluten forever? At the moment, it is just strict exclusion. There is some research going on into um, whether they might be able to treat it in 
different ways but currently that's the only that's literally mm. the only the route to sort of and how it. many people is it affecting because a lot of people these days it's quite fashionable to be gluten-free mm. <laughs> so talk us through the difference between a true allergy like that and a, an intolerance to gluten yeah so um about one in a hundred people um have true celiac disease that's still um, quite a lot one in a hundred yeah no it is and i think it, it's the one important point to make is that if you do think you have a problem with gluten you potentially might have celiac disease really important that you're still consuming it when you go to see your gp and you have a test because lots of people cut it out because they think it's a problem then go to get tested and actually the antibodies won't show up if you're not consuming good tip. so yeah do make sure that you have you, a nice piece of mama and toast yeah. or something before you head off yeah so you need to make sure that you've got the equivalent of probably about a slice of bread in your diet every day before going for the test for how long? For, um, for so. about no, it's actually for about six weeks. That's why. Six yeah. weeks. Gosh, that yeah. is really going to show up a lot of false negatives, then, isn't yeah. it? If you've not been eating that amount of gluten every day yeah. before you get clinically tested. Yeah. So it's a bit, it's a bit that's difficult. Really because I do tip. understand if people are experiencing symptoms, but that's why it's important that if they have been going on, see your GP as soon as possible, mm-hmm. so you can get that ruled out. In terms of gluten intolerance, it's a really grey area, and that's because there's food intolerance is a grey area in general. What do you think about that as a dietitian? So I think the more likely explanation is that lots of people, um, particularly with IBS, are sensitive to uh, FODMAPs. FODMAPs, great. Let's talk about FODMAPs. Explain what is a FODMAP. um, A FODMAP, it's a... it's an acronym for a much more complicated sentence. Which it stands is, for F-O-D-M-A-P. Yeah, yeah, so fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. Now you know why we call it FODMAPs. I'm glad you said that, <laughs> not me. So essentially FODMAPs are a group of um, short-chain sugars which are found naturally in many different foods. Um, and from, there's nothing inherently unhealthy about them where most of us consume them with absolutely no problems. Um, they're part of foods. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with them. So but, FODMAPs are things like onions. So they're found things, in, so they? yeah, they're groups of, um, they're a type of carbohydrate. They're very short chain sugars and they're found in various foods, including onion and garlic and apples and milk. So it can so be really healthy stuff. Yeah, exactly. As I said, there's nothing, they're a component of these foods. They're not the, the whole food. They're a component of the foods. Um, the problem for people with IBS is that um, they don't tend to, absorb these short chain sugars very well so what happens is they travel through the gut and they land in the large intestine and again the bacteria can very readily ferment these sugars and produce gas um, and can draw water in the bowel and cause diarrhea so people with IBS about a percentage of people with IBS are very sensitive to FODMAP so when they eat a very high FODMAP diet they might find it quite triggering for them so they mm. might find that they're getting really gassy and bloated or sort of having to run to the toilet um the other thing that's worth noting about um IBS is that people with IBS tend to have very sensitive nerve endings in the gut so if you don't have IBS we could um we could sort of put lots of gas into your gut and you might just sort of think I feel fine like don't mm-hmm. notice any effects mm-hmm. but if you're somebody with IBS and we put lots of gas into your gut you might experience really really sharp pain and right. lots of discomfort and so part of the problem is not necessarily that gas is being formed it's just the fact that they are experiencing lots of discomfort as a result Fascinating. Um, so for people with IBS um do you uh, always put somebody on a low FODMAP diet no, then to try not it? at all actually it's um it's very popular so yeah. it was developed in an, a university called Monash which is in um, Melbourne in Australia it was developed about in 2006 and then sort of lots of research took place and it, and it came over here um and now it is um 
what I say as part of the medical pathway for IBS, um, it is approved, but not as a first step. So um, never do it as a first thing that right. you try. And that's because there's lots of, as we sort of chatted about, there's lots of potential triggers for IBS. So it might be way, 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 uh, you know, down the line in terms of there's lots of other things to try first. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a type of elimination diet and it's quite tough to do. So um, I never recommend doing it without the support of a dietitian. Right. Um, and it's also only ever supposed to be done in the short term. So for how long should you, if you wanted to try FODMAP? Yep. So um, it should be done for a maximum of sort of six to eight weeks. Um, and then essentially you eliminate sort of foods that are high in FODMAPs. And if your symptoms improve, it would suggest that you're sensitive to some of those foods. And then after that elimination period, you follow the reintroduction period where you introduce the various foods in different amounts and finds out which ones you're sensitive to. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want people to be on the diet in the long term because it is quite restricted. Uh, it's low in some nutrients like calcium and fibre. Um, and also, one thing about FODMAPs, as I said, they're not unhealthy. They do actually feed the bacteria in your gut. So mm. actually, we don't want to cut too many of them out in the long term uh, because we know that that might have a detrimental effect. So Mm -hmm. it's a sort of short-term intervention to sort of help manage symptoms and identify maybe the four or five trigger foods that might be causing some of the problems. Really interesting. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You mentioned the word fermented yes. foods earlier. Topic so, now, <laughs> I mean, I love a bit of fermented food. And, and we were here with Ursel Barnes, who's a big, big fermenter, um, just the other day. What is it about fermented foods and are they helpful for IBS or should we be Mm. avoiding them for IBS? So fermented foods 
uh, foods that are produced by the action of, of live microbes have, have gained a lot of traction because they are um, they contain some of the bacteria or beneficial bacteria which is similar to the beneficial bacteria in our gut so things like sauerkraut and exactly. kimchi kombucha, kombucha kefir, drinks yeah kefir, my exactly favorite. which and they've been yeah. around for many thousands of years but mm-hmm. they have they're riding a wave of trend and and yeah. you know the hipster vibes at the moment and they do they do <laughs> you know as well as having potentially beneficial effects of the gut they taste quite delicious as well so yeah. that's you know it's great um, but obviously, if you're somebody with IBS and you read that these foods are potentially good for your gut health, you might think, well, this is the way forward. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, lots of fermented foods are quite high in FODMAPs as well. Okay. So therefore, um, just sort of chowing down on a big sort of jar of sauerkraut is actually likely to make you feel worse in terms of symptoms and not better. Um, that's not to say that people with IBS can't have fermented foods, but I would always say... Um, they have the potential to sort of be triggering in terms of mm. symptoms. Um, and as always, like, go slow. So to, yeah. I wouldn't sort of advise... Generally what happens is we tend to think if a little bit of something is good, lots of it must be better. So we sort of, you know, go and buy all the kefir and and start sort of digging into sauerkraut. I would say if you want to try some, try one and try it in a very small amount. Yeah, teaspoon you can, of something. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Maybe able to gradually sort of build up, build up your tolerance there. Um and just going back to the gluten thing is that FODMAPs are found in wheat, rye and barley. That's some of the foods that they're found in. Now, gluten is also found in those foods. Mm-hmm. So quite often somebody with IBS might be sensitive to the FODMAPs. But because those FODMAPs are also found in gluten containing foods, it can be quite confusing. Mm. So that's why I'd always say if possible, and I know not everyone has access to you, but sort of working with a dietitian can help sure. you to work out what's what's really going on. Do you know, it's really interesting because um, I like sourdough bread. Mm. I, mean, I don't have a lot of bread at home, but if particularly at the weekends, if I have a nice piece of, you know, avocado on toast or something, it'll always be a sourdough just because mm. I've got to really like it. And I have my parents who are elderly. And they're, my mother's 80, my father's 82, stay with me recently. And I made some sourdough toast in the morning and my Dad said, oh, what's that? You know, I said, oh, it's sourdough. I said, oh, it's actually rather nice, you know. And so he said to my mum when they got back home, um, I quite like that, that, you know, bread that we had the other day. Uh, So she's been buying him sourdough Mm. and making toast. And she said to me, she said, oh, you know, should your father's getting on really well with this um, bread. Every time he has a piece of toast now, he doesn't need to have an indigestion tablet mm. afterwards. Well, I mean, number one, I had no idea that he was having an indigestion tablet <laughs> after every piece of bread. Because if I'd known that, I would have yeah. said, hold on a minute, this Something is wrong. this is not mm. what we should be, what, it's not normal to be doing that. But number two, how fascinating mm. that just that switch in the change of bread from buying normal yeah, I mean, they used to buy nice quality bread, but, you know, from buying that to buying a sourdough, which mm. is fermented. Yeah. So how is that working then? So sourdough, although, so sourdough, yep, it's made by the process of fermentation, um, but it's not a source of live microbes because when it goes in the oven, sure, <laughs> those live get microbes killed get killed off. So how, how does it work? But during the fermentation process, you know, the bacteria um, produce various enzymes, which might actually be helping us with the digestion process. Uh, and they're sort of maybe breaking down various, um, some of the various kind of starches and sugars in the bread. So it might mm. just be that it's slightly easier, or I don't say like pre-digested because that sounds a bit horrible, isn't it? But yeah, essentially they do some of the work that, yeah. and they're, they're, you know, the, the microbes that are there have potentially produced various enzymes, which may actually help with the digestion process. So, uh, so it is and, a genuine thing and it's yeah, not just I mean, oh, anecdote, a fancy I, mm, artisan I don't bread. Think, 
yeah, these we're never going to get these types of you know studies. But I, anecdotally, for mm. sure, um, you know, people that I've worked with do find they tolerate sourdough bread slightly easier. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. So, if you were looking at somebody, what would be your first course of action? You know, would you be putting them on an exclusion diet? Would you be recommending certain supplements? Where do probiotics come into all this? Mm. Can they be helpful to take as a supplement? If for somebody with IBS, yeah, be, yeah. So the first thing I do is I want to sit down and have a really detailed history with them. So finding out, you know, how long their symptoms have been going on, and only you can tell quite a lot by, yeah, just going back. You know, is it something that they've struggled with? since they were a child did it start after a tummy bug you know did it start after a stressful mm. period at work because quite often that can give you a bit of steer of direction in, in what might be most helpful for them um and just sometimes some really basic lifestyle measures which none of us really want to hear but most of us are really stressed these days and rushing around we tend to eat on yeah. the go lots of us are eating at our desks rushing meals um so just some sort of basic lifestyle advice in terms of slowing down a bit taking time over meals and not eating yeah. too late at night. When I was at the Maya Clinic in Austria, they have this protocol that you have to chew everything 30 <laughs> times before you swallow, even soup. <laughs> so that was a it's real impossible. challenge. But it did make you very kind of mindful, to use that word, of, of what you were eating. And actually, they were very much about digestion and improving yeah. digestive process. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, one of the things, if we eat really quickly, we miss the signals that tell us that we're, we need a bit of time for the sort of, our, you know, gut hormones to communicate with our brain and so actually if we eat really quickly we can quite often end up overeating or if you've ever had that sensation of finishing eating and then filling fuller 10 minutes afterwards because suddenly yeah. the, the sort of gut horns have kicked in and been like yeah we've, we've had enough um so, so slowing, slowing everything down, down yeah is, and just taking time yeah. over meals um i always sort of chat to people about stress reduction and managing that so mm. there's a few studies that have shown that both mindfulness and yoga can help with ibs symptom mm -hmm. management and that's obviously to do with the, the gut brain um, yeah. connection. And then in terms of their diet, you know, looking at things, just really basic stuff to begin with. So how much caffeine and alcohol they're having. So caffeine um, basically stimulates a movement in the gut. So yes, if you are someone who's having sort of loose stools and drinking lots and lots of coffee, that's definitely something to look at. Right. Again, with alcohol, that can increase, you know, if, um, not with, I'm not talking about having an occasional glass of wine, but I'm talking about having lots and lots of drinks in one go, um, so sort of going out and drinking more heavily on the weekend definitely can increase IBS symptoms and uh, looking at things like how much sort of processed food and spicy food and fatty food they're having in their diet because that mm -hmm. can quite often trigger symptoms and looking at their fiber so potentially if they've got constipation maybe looking to increase their fiber mm. if they've got diarrhea looking at what types of fiber because some of um, types are better tolerated than others so fiber is good it's just a question of knowing your fiber tolerance and, and, yeah and, and, and feeding types. your microbes with the right types of yeah. supplements or fiber exactly and so i would do all those things first i would look at all of that stuff yeah. and then if that and potentially just ruling out things like could there be lactose intolerance there mm -hmm. might they be quite sensitive to fructose which is the sugar that's naturally found in fruits so all of that stuff would happen first before we would consider doing sort of FODMAPs with them. Sure. Um, which um, like and what about sort of daily process. probiotics because I, I mean I, mm. I do top up my probiotics just yeah. as a kind of health insurance I know the science isn't mm. there yet but I my view is the more the merrier and that's just yeah I think certain it's... ones I like like rhamnosus I find is very good for female kind of pelvic health yeah I think it's I think generally the the I feel strongly that probiotics are a really positive thing I mm. think the problem is that 
you know, the, there's lots of different probiotics out there and there's lots of different symptoms and, you know, we're taking yeah. a probiotic to maintain our gut health or we're taking a probiotic to try and treat bloating or constipation. And so that's probably where the waters get a bit muddied because mm -hmm. there'll probably be a specific strain that's quite good for a specific symptom. So, for example, uh, in within IBS, there have been several probiotics that have been shown to be really helpful. Well, we've shown to have some um, symptom benefit. Like the so, bifidobacteria. Yeah, so generally ones that have got bifidobacteria or lactobacillus. Um, so Simprove is a liquid probiotic. Mm. They had um, a trial with um, IBS and showed that people um, got symptom improvement. Um mm -hmm. So that's one. There's another one called Aflorex, and they also had a, a trial where they found that people who were taking Aflorex had an improvement in their symptoms. So, mm. what the these studies are beginning to happen? Yeah, then. they are, and I think you know they won't they won't work for everybody. That's the thing. Yeah. The general kind of there's um uh, the advice at the moment regarding probiotics is actually they're they're safe to try. Yes. You know? So that's yeah, the they, good they, thing. They're not going to do yeah, any harm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and what we would say is try um, try to look for um, a probiotic that's had some kind of research for the sure. for the symptom or for the condition that you're looking for, um, and try it for four weeks. And if you're not seeing any benefit after mm -hmm. four weeks, probably switch to another one. It's probably not going to make a difference. Yeah. Um, and if you are finding a benefit, then, you know, fine to continue with that. Mm. And hopefully in the future, we will be able to give sort of more, I don't want to say personalised, but more specific advice. Around yeah, those. really interesting. Mm. Do you do any uh, stool analysis? Are you doing that? Sort of, is that something that's happening as a new thing? Uh, it is happening. We, I don't do any and just kind of um, in... Uh, generally speaking sort of in the nhs it's not something that's done i think at the moment it's still quite a new area when i've spoken to kind of several gastroenterologists they've sort of told me that it's still quite a young science and they don't think that you know when we're looking at it are we essentially when we're testing somebody's poo we're just getting a snapshot of what's going on then that day yeah now if we consider that your microbiome can change in as little as 24 hours so if you went to yes. italy for the weekend sure, and feasted on all the wine and yeah, all the cheese and came population. back mm -hmm. and we tested you on monday that would be very different to i don't know if you had you know you spent all week long eating fruits and vegetables you we're just literally taking a snapshot of that day so mm -hmm. i think one single you know gut microbiome test in terms of if we're trying to look at it for your gut bacteria I don't think it's that useful obviously That's if you were going to repeat point. that over a period mm -hmm. of time um and also there's questions about whether you know when we're testing um your poop and we're looking at the types of microbes are we are we just getting a picture of what's going on lower in the gut what about further up in the gut you know yeah. your colon's quite long <laughs> it's like right. a meter and a half so you know <laughs> what what bit are we what are we really testing what are we getting a reflection of yeah. so I think um and I think it, it's used in research but generally in research they're not just taking one snapshot they're doing repeated mm. you know kind of repeated tests over a period of time and then and comparing them so I think for general population at the moment it's not worth the money is my opinion yeah um, I think in the future then you know there might be but it's quite early days still mm. so basically bottom line is excuse the pun uh, <laughs> is eat a lot more fibre but be wary or aware of the different types of fibre yeah um, and I thought your point about gluten and having that sensitivity test and eating gluten for six weeks, mm. you know, on a daily basis before you go for the test is completely fascinating yeah. because that is not something that I've heard before. And it's not something that I would think of, mm. um, at least not for that amount of time. Consider things like the bifidobacteria, so either with supplements. Yeah, yogurts, and don't forget, that's why I know you're talking about this when you spoke with Tim, but 
you know, fibrous fertilizer for your bacteria. So mm. the thing about probiotics, and we're still learning, is like, how do we get them into the gut? How do we get yep. them to survive the very harsh conditions of your gut? And also probiotics are a bit like tourists. They might change the economy, <laughs> but they don't necessarily stay in the gut. Whereas if you're eating fibre on a daily basis, you're constantly kind of providing fertiliser for your gut yeah. bugs. And we know definitely from like mice studies that if we kind of um, say mice who are born without microbiome and then we put a human microbiome sort of in, sort of mm. uh, transplant them with um a human microbiome that actually when we we give them fiber free diets um their microbiome starts to shrink in terms of numbers of bacteria and diversity and also they start to um the lining of their gut starts to um degrade as well and equally then if we sort of start giving them more fiber we see yeah. increases in the diversity and the numbers of, of their gut bacteria so yeah fiber generally also eating lots of different plant foods is really good so mm-hmm. probiotics yes definitely seem to be helpful i think in terms of knowing the exact type and how we get them there is still we've got a big question but you know if we go back from that actually just generally you know having a sort of um not an exclusively plant-based diet but just a plant-centered diet maybe yes, with lots of rich. different colors because mm-hmm. that's for the polyphenols so they're substances that sort of help feed your gut bacteria as well plenty of fiber and if you're somebody with ibs then um i guess adjusting your fiber intake to what you can what you mm-hmm. can manage and of course don't forget that you get your gut bugs too from some of your drinks like yes. the kombuchas yeah and the kefirs yeah, potentially exactly now exactly. you've got a blog haven't you you've got a really good website with a lot of ips info yeah so I've, yeah i've got a few things so i launched a program in january called happy gut guide so that's with madeline shaw so mm-hmm. she um she's a long she's had ibs for a long time yeah. um so we sort of teamed up to do it's like a 12-week self-care program for mm. people with ibs and that was literally born out of I guess, wanting to just help people who are diagnosed with IBS and don't really know where to start. So all the things I spoke about today, we cover in the programme. Well, I'll make sure that we put those up as resources on the website. And yeah, on my website, I blog about um, IBS a bit um, and I'm going to be launching a new programme later this year, which is for people without IBS that just want to look after their gut health. health. We'll be talking a lot more about, I've teamed up with um, a fermenter um, called Flora. So Flora and Laura, Flora the I know. Flora and Laura, my goodness, that's really good. Yeah. So that will be um, because there is differences in how you would approach gut health for somebody with IBS and somebody without, yeah. and I think that's often what gets missed. Um, and we need to remember that probably the advice is different if you're somebody who's got a condition and you're somebody mm. that hasn't. But the upshot is that for most people, in many cases, it's it's positive. There's lots that we can do. Yeah, and I think you know it's easy to think, oh my goodness, like do I need this supplement or that? But what I want people to remember is that looking after your gut health like isn't expensive and doesn't have to be complicated so if we take it back to basics um exercise so movement's really important movement Mm. sort of helps prevent constipation but also increases the beneficial bacteria in your gut eating lots of fruits and vegetables eating plenty of fiber you know stress management those are the kind of basic tools fantastic Laura thank you so much thank you really really (laughs) good and that is sadly all we have time for today but as I said as always you will find details of the resources and the links that we've mentioned in today's show over on lizardwellbeing.com where you can sign up to the free newsletter for recipes gut-friendly well-being wisdom and behind-the-scenes treats now don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app before you leave me that will ensure that the next episode is downloaded safely without you having to remember And if you feel so inclined, do please leave us a review as it does help other potential listeners to find us and more importantly, perhaps, to find the help that they may well need. Until the next time, go well. Bye bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.